Well, this morning is our last Sunday uh, in the book of Esther. And I hope that you have enjoyed this time in Esther as much as I have. This book has been really helpful to me in several ways. Uh, it's been helpful, one, just because it's a literary masterpiece, as I've said, Lord, uh, many, many times. It's just, it's just fun. Like, it's, it's fun to read. There's so many twists and turns and unexpected things. And uh, it's, it's the way that it's knit together. And it kind of has this, you know, building to the climax and then reversal mirror t- type of situation going on in the second half. It's just a fun book. But more importantly... I think it's been a good lesson for us on how to read the Bible, in particular, how to read the Old Testament. And we, we confess and we believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Jesus himself said that in Luke chapter 24. But sometimes we come to the Old Testament in particular and we think, okay, how am I supposed to believe that this is about Jesus? Like, I don't see it. In particular, as we've said, the book of Esther doesn't even mention the name God. But as we've seen, at every point, at every turn, there's these shapes and shadows and types that are pointing to Christ in so many ways. And I hope that's, that's given you some instruction as you continue to read the Old Testament, various books, to know sort of how to look for Christ and how to look for the gospel in whatever part of Scripture you're in. And that leads us to, to the next way that it's been beneficial, which is it has pointed us to Christ. It's pointed us to the gospel. I hope that's been refreshing and encouraging to you to hear in a a different way, in a unique way, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. It's also given us practical wisdom for life. We've we've thought about things like the relationship of faith and works, of prayer and action, uh, of living life in in a context that not only does not support what you believe about God, but in some ways may be hostile to what you believe about God. This morning, last week we finished up the narrative of Esther. This morning is sort of a review sermon. And we're going to review what I think is the main theme of the book, namely, even when it looks like God is absent, he is working for his glory and the good of his people. Even when it looks like God is absent, he's working for his glory and the good of his people. That gets us into, as I prayed, the doctrine of God's providence, which we'll spend our time thinking about this morning. I'm going to read from Esther 4, verse 14. Some of you maybe thought I was going to read the entire book of Esther, since this is a review sermon. Uh, But I figured, A, this is the most famous verse in the whole book, and B, it actually does fit with this theme of God's providence. So Esther 4, verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is the word of the Lord. In the very mediocre 2005 summer thriller Red Eye, starring Cillian Murphy and Rachel McAdams, two main characters meet randomly by chance at an airport bar. They're both waiting for their flight, and they meet at the bar, and they start talking, and it's a friendly conversation. It's polite. It's a little bit flirty, but then they part, and they never expect to see one another again until they arrive at their gate, And lo and behold, they're sitting close to each other at the gate. They realize, oh, what a coincidence. What are the odds? We're on the same flight. And of course, they start to board the flight. Rachel McAdams sits down first in her seat, and she looks up, and who's coming to sit next to her but Cillian Murphy. And there's so many coincidences, so many chances, that he looks at her half-jokingly and says, you're not stalking me, are you? But of course, if you've seen the movie, you know that she's not stalking him, he's stalking her. Uh, and he, he reveals through this that all of the, what, uh, what appeared to be coincidences, what appeared to be chances, were not coincidental at all. They were all part of a plan, in this case, a really evil plan. In a somewhat similar way, 
There's all kinds of coincidences in the book of Esther. Think about way back at the beginning, uh, Queen Vashti refuses the direction of her husband. She refuses to submit to him. Probably this isn't the first time he's made some gross misogynistic request of her, but for whatever reason, this particular time, she decides, I'm not going along with it. And so in his rage, he throws her out of the palace and decides to have this huge beauty pageant to pick the next queen. And out of all the hundreds and hundreds of women who are involved in this process, one of them becomes the next queen. And who is it? Just by happenstance, coincidentally, it's this young Jewish girl named Esther. You move on. Her cousin Mordecai gets into this conflict with Haman, the second most powerful guy in the kingdom. And Haman decides, I'm going to destroy all the Jews. And he, he decides to leave it up to chance, leave it up to fate when it's going to happen. So he rolls some dice and it lands on a particular month and a particular day. And it just so happens that it's the last month of the year, which we saw was important because it gave time for God's plan to unfold and God's people to respond. Perhaps the greatest coincidence of the whole book is that one night the king just couldn't sleep. Now, you've had sleepless nights, I'm sure, where you're like, there's no reason for me not being able to sleep. I didn't have an extra cup of coffee tonight. It's not a particularly stressful day. I'm just lying in bed, wide awake, and I can't go to sleep. And that's what happened to the king. And so the king asks for a bedtime story to be read to him. And instead of Goodnight Moon, he elects for uh, the record of all the great things that have happened in his kingdom. And as his, his whoever, guard, is reading it to him, he, he just so happens to read the story of Mordecai discovering this plot to kill the king. And the king sits bolt upright and says, wait a second, what have we done to honor this guy? And just as he begins to start thinking about a plan to honor him, Haman, his right-hand man, just so happens to walk into the courtyard. And the king says, get Haman up here right now. And he says, what should we do for the man that the king wants to honor? And of course, Haman thinks he's talking about him, so he gives him all this elaborate stuff. And the king says, great, go do that for Mordecai the Jew, which is the turning point of the book. Because the king could not sleep, this great reversal starts in the entire book of Esther. Perhaps one of the last coincidences is at the end when Esther has gone before the king to plead for her people. The king hears her request and you know, he says, I don't want this to happen to your people. But he's not, he doesn't actually seem that upset at Haman until what happens? Until he walks out of the room. And Haman is pleading with Esther for mercy, and he just so happens to trip and fall on her. And the king comes back and thinks that he's violating her. And so he, that's when he gets infuriated, and he says, that's it. Hang Haman on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. There's all these apparent coincidences in the book of Esther, but they're not mere coincidences. They were planned. In this case, not by a bad guy in a movie, but by the best guy, by God. And what looks like chance to the unbelieving eye is the providence of God to the believing heart. The promise of Esther is that even when it looks like God is MIA, he is working behind the scenes. There are no mere coincidences in the book of Esther. There's no mere coincidences in your life. There's purpose in whatever season you're in right now. Whatever you're going through, whatever, whatever part of your season seems really meaningful or really meaningless, seems really purposeful or purposeless, God has a purpose in it. There's purpose not only in your present, but in your past. You may look back on your life and think there are things that, that shouldn't have happened, things that were unjust. Why, there's no reason for this. Why did this happen? It seems meaningless. It's not. God had a purpose for it. There's meaning in the life situation to which God has called you, your job, your family, your singleness, your marriage, 
your income status, the neighborhood you live in, the school that you go to. There's meaning in the life situation to which God has called you, and not just broadly, not just generally, but narrowly in every single moment. If we believe in the providence of God, then you and I must confess that we've never lived a meaningless moment in our entire lives. One of the great uh, tragedies in the process that, that philosophers and historians call secularization, which is basically the last 500 years, the, the, the Western world moving from a, a world in which it was virtually impossible to not believe in God to a world in where it's very difficult to believe in God. This process, uh, again, that many have called secularization, one of the tragedies of that process is a loss, in my opinion, of the sense of meaning in every moment. The philosopher Charles Taylor uses the word disenchantment to describe this. And he gives, he gives three sort of, um, three, three things, three, three realities that were present 500 years ago in the West, all of which he says are gone now. That's part of this process of disenchantment. He says, one, 500 years ago, everything in the natural world testified to God. So, you know, he's not just talking about, like, we look at the cosmos, we look at the fine-tuning of design, and we think there must be a designer, there must be a creator. He means Every act of nature, uh, you see this in your insurance policies. They talk still about acts of God. That's how people 500 years ago actually viewed the world. Floods and droughts and sunshine and rain and heavy wind and storms, all of these things pointed to God is doing something. He's pleased with us or he's displeased with us. A second reality, he said there was no secular sacred divide. Everything in life was sacred. So in our day, you, you hopefully can't go to church without your, your heart, your mind, your, your whole person being directed toward God. But there was a time when you also could not go to the marketplace or to dinner at a friend's house or to work or to court without being directed to the reality of the, of the divine. There was no sacred secular divide. Everything was sacred. And the third thing, he says, the world was enchanted, quote, full of spirits, demons, and moral forces. Now, I think a, a really good illustration of this comes not from history, but from The Lord of the Rings, uh, in particular, The Fellowship of the Ring, the book and not the movie. So I'm of the opinion, along with most people, I think that the movies are a wonderful adaptation of the books, but there's one oversight that I wish they would have included, and that is the venture into the old forest in The Fellowship of the Ring, meeting Tom Bombadil and these other characters. And they come upon it. The hobbits have just left the Shire, and they're on the edge of the old forest, and a couple of them get so spooked because they've heard it's an enchanted forest that they leave. And Pippin, one of the hobbits, asks his cousin Mary, are the stories about it true? Mary's been there before. He says, I don't know what stories you mean. If you mean the old bogey stories about goblins and wolves and things of that sort, I should say no. At any rate, I don't believe them. He says, but the forest is strange. Everything in it is much more alive, more aware of what is going on, so to speak, than things are in the Shire. At night, Things can be most alarming, or so I'm told. I've only once or twice been in here after dark, and then only near the hedge, but I thought all the trees were whispering to each other, and passing news and plots along in an unintelligible language, and the branches swayed and groped without any wind. Now, if you know the Lord of the Rings, you know the enchanted forest thing is kind of a motif. There are several enchanted forests in Lord of the Rings, and that view of the forest is actually a pretty good description of how people viewed the world several hundred years ago. Now, to be clear, I think there was an overreach there. Uh, I don't think that we should look for a demon under every bush. But I do think 
that with the loss of all of these features, we've, we've lost something. There, there's a reason, isn't there, why we love fantasy and fairy tales. And not just because they're entertaining stories, but I think they, they tug at this sense that we have in our hearts that there has to be more to life than what meets the eye. And with the loss of, of all three of these things that Charles Taylor talks about, uh, basically, you know, we, we live in a world where uh, every part of nature is explained away by science. We live in a public square that's totally devoid of any reference to God or the gods. And we live lives that are disenchanted. And I would just suggest that that's a really thin and flat experience. It's just, it's just, it just falls flat. What the providence of God does, this doctrine that we're talking about today, is to some degree it re-enchants our lives. It reintroduces that meaning into every moment. Every moment of our lives becomes pregnant with meaning and purpose because every moment of our lives is lived under the providence of God. Now, I keep saying that word, so I should define it. What do we mean when we talk about God's providence? Here's what I mean. That God did not just create the world and set it into motion and then step away from it. There's this idea of God that he's the sort of cosmic watchmaker, that he, he gets into all the, the nitty-gritty details and he sets it up so that it can run on its own, and then he steps away and watches it. That's, not, that's, that's heresy. That's not a Christian view of God. God's providence means that he doesn't just create the world, but he continues to actively uphold everything that he has created and cause it to keep going, and that he directs everything that happens in it toward his desired ends. So we see this, for example, in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. By him all things hold together. Specifically, Paul is saying that God the Father spoke creation into existence through his Son, and he continues to uphold all things, which means not, you know, not just like theoretically, but like the, the planets and the stars in outer space are held together, not just by gravity, but by the Son of God. It means the, the very molecules in the pew that you're sitting on and in, in your body are being actively held together by God, such that if he were to withdraw his hand for one millisecond, everything would disintegrate and cease to exist. Also see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, which tells us that God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So God's not just sort of generally speaking holding all things together, but he's actively and specifically causing all of its parts to work together toward his will. We could further divide the doctrine of God's providence into two parts, his general providence and his specific or special providence. There's a really old statement of faith called the London Baptist Confession, which some English people about 350 years ago put together. And it talks about God's providence, and it says of his general providence, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and all things, from the greatest even to the least. God upholds and directs and governs all creatures, from the greatest to the least. There's a, on C.S. Lewis, his space trilogy, the second book called Paralandra, Deep Cut. If you've read it, you know. Uh, basically, the, the main character is sent to another planet to try to 
to try to help keep their Adam and Eve characters from falling into sin. And by the end of the book, he's found himself on this other planet. Uh, he's been washed away in the ocean, and he's come up in these caverns, these deep caverns on a different planet, and he hears a little bit of trickling of water and sees a little bit of light, and so he's trying to find his way out. And as he does, he comes across life. He sees these strange creatures in the caverns, these wild-looking beasts, and at first he's terrified they're going to eat him. But he has this moment where he sees that they're doing this, like almost like you would see, you know, bees famously like working together, right? They're like, they're just going about their lives under in these caves. And there's this moment where one of them looks at him and just looks at him with this funny look like, who are you and what are you doing here? And then it just goes back about his business. And it says it occurs to him at this moment that there is life and there is creativity and there is order happening in parts of God's created universe that just have absolutely nothing to do with us. That, that don't relate to us in any way, and yet God is still actively governing them for his glory. And, and without getting into the conversations about life on other planets, we can just stay here and consider like the ocean floors on earth that are vastly undiscovered and unexplored. There's life on earth that we have no idea about, and yet God is providentially governing it, and it glorifies him. I mean, does that just like makes me feel so much smaller and makes God feel so much bigger to know that he's getting glory from stuff that just has nothing to do with us. But his special providence is so much more beautiful to me. Again, the London Baptist Confession says, as the providence of God in general reaches to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and dispenses all things to the good thereof. God's providence, after a special manner, takes care of his church and dispenses all things to the good thereof. The promise of God's providence is that the God who works all things together according to his will does so for our good. It's no wonder, then, that John Calvin could say there is nothing more calculated to increase our faith than the knowledge of the providence of God. Because without it, we would be harassed with doubts and fears, being uncertain whether or not the world was governed by chance. And we should say, if the world is not governed by God's providence, then it must be governed by chance. And let's just think about that for a moment. If the world were governed by chance, how could you ever hope to have a meaningful life? If the world were not governed by divine providence, how could you ever hope to experience anything meaningful? In his book, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller has a chapter all about meaning, and I highly recommend it to you. I recommend the whole book. But he says, basically, if we admit that the universe is governed by chance, we also have to admit that we don't have any hope of receiving meaning that comes from outside of us. If the world is governed by chance, there's no objective meaning. And so any hope that we have of living a meaningful life, we have to come up with that meaning. We have to create that meaning on our own, which is what everybody around you does. It may be what you do sometimes. But Keller argues, and I think rather convincingly, he says, created meanings are much more fragile and thin than discovered meanings. Created meanings are much more fragile and thin than discovered meanings. The whole concept of making your own meaning means that you have to, to find a way to get things outside of yourself to cooperate with your meaning in life. So, for example, if, if you find that to have a meaningful life, you must get married. Well, there has to be somebody out there who will marry you. 
If you find that to have a meaningful life, you need to have kids, well, you have to be able to, to get pregnant and have children. And so Keller goes on and he says, the problem is that, that life often doesn't cooperate with you. Life isn't simply, he says, what you make it. Often, it just is what it is. And we are not free to impose our meanings on life. In other words, even if you succeeded for a moment in creating a meaningful life for yourself, wouldn't you just be anxiously looking over your shoulder all the time, worrying that it's about to be taken away from you by something outside of your control? Like, if, if your meaningful life, if you think family is the meaning of life, people say that. Okay, what happens if you get a divorce? What happens if your kids grow up and they don't like you? What happens if somebody dies? Then you, you, You've lost your meaning. You think the meaning of life is having and spending a lot of money. What happens if you lose your job or the stock market crashes? If you think it's your career, and by the way, a lot of people move to Nashville because their career is their God. It's the thing that they think they need to have a meaningful life. What if you move here and you try for 10 years to make it and you never make it? Or you, you, you know, spend decades climbing in a company and they, they fire you and embarrass you in front of the whole company. If your meaning is in beauty and strength, what happens if you get injured or if you get old? which one of those could happen overnight. The other one will happen, not necessarily overnight. Although I felt like it's happened overnight recently. If the world is governed by chance, you can't really hope to have a meaningful life. But the world is not governed by chance. It is governed by God's providence, which means that God is working for our good. So what does that mean? God's working for our good. We're not talking about, you know, divine providence isn't oriented to get you that parking space when you're running late for work uh, or to, you know, even make that $1,000 check just magically appear in the mail when you're running behind on bills. Those things can happen, and you can pray for those things. I pray for parking spots, but that's not really the point of God's providence. God's providence is working toward our ultimate good, which is what? It's our salvation. And we see this in the book of Esther. God's providence in Esther wasn't random. It was directed toward the deliverance of his people. You know, Esther and Mordecai got rich and famous in the process, but that's not what God's providence was about. It was about putting them in a position where they could work to the deliverance of and the flourishing of the tens of thousands of God's people who were in exile. It wasn't about them. It was about the deliverance of everybody else through them. And the same is true in our lives. People, um, sort of like the the combination of like self-help, new age stuff, plus just pop culture, plus Christianity, those sorts of like influencers that you might see around. They talk a lot about like your breakthrough is coming. Just, just believe for your next breakthrough, your next big thing. God's going to give you X, Y, or Z. That's not it. God's will, the Bible says, is about our sanctification. That First Thessalonians 4 says, this is God's will, your sanctification. Romans 8 tells us that God's will is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God's providence is working for, your salvation. His sovereignty is working for our deliverance, just as it was working for the deliverance of the people in Esther. In fact, we see this beautifully summarized in the opening sentences of the book that we're going to start get, digging into next week. So, sneak peek, we are beginning a series in Galatians next week. In Galatians 1, 3-5 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory 
forever and ever. Those three verses summarize the entire gospel. They summarize the entire book of Esther. They summarize the entire doctrine of God's providence. Working backwards in Paul's logic, he talks about the will of God. That's God's providence, right? He says the will of God our Father. That God, God's providence is him directing everything toward our will. And so what does God do out of his will, out of his providence? Paul says that he works to rescue us, to deliver us, to save us. And how does he do it? Here's where we, we kind of land the plane on sermon and on Esther. He does it in a very specific way. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, who gave himself for our sins. God's providence is the means by which he, he works for our deliverance through a mediator. Through a mediator. And again, this is the story of Esther. Esther is the mediator, right? She's put, God put a person in the palace to intercede on behalf of the people. He, he, he worked through her, through her suffering, right? She suffered, but through her suffering, God elevated her to a position of power and influence at the right hand of the king. All this points to Jesus. Jesus wasn't taken from his home like Esther was, but he willingly left it to come to earth and take on human nature and human flesh. Jesus wasn't subjected to suffering against his will, but he willingly took on suffering. And, and not only did he risk his life like Esther, but what he gave his life willingly for the deliverance of his people. And on the third day rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, like we saw Mordecai ascending to the right hand of the king, from which place he intercedes for us and works all things for our good. What does this mean for us? It means a few things, uh, and I hope that, that these will land as sort of the, the conclusion of the book of Esther for us. One, God has provided for our greatest need. In God's providence, God, through Christ, has provided for our greatest need. And what is our greatest need? It's the forgiveness of sins. Because sin is the thing that, that keeps the barrier between us and God. And God has provided for our greatest need by removing it. And we are hardwired as people, and, and it's, the message is reinforced to us all the time, that we have an external problem with an internal solution. That all of our problems are outside of ourselves, in society, in a dysfunctional family, in a mean boss, and our solution is within ourselves. That if we just change our way of thinking, change our habits, change our way of acting, work harder, express ourselves more fully, that our problems will go away. But the Bible comes in and says, you've got this all backwards. Your chief problem is internal, and your chief solution is external. And that may sound mean, like you're the problem. But it's not mean if it's, one, true, and two, if God is willing to provide the solution, which he has in his providence in Christ. Christ is our God-given mediator. He is the great external solution to our internal problem. Second, God has provided meaning for our lives. Christ redeemed us from the meaninglessness of a happenstance universe. And he injected our present days and moments with meaning. Listen, we said... If the world is governed by chance, how can you hope to have a meaningful life? But if the world is governed by God, how could you have a meaningless life? If the world is governed by God and Christ has removed the barrier between you and him and opened up the way to him, if he's given you his spirit, if he's given you his word so that he actually speaks to you through what he's spoken, if he's, if he's given you a mission, a purpose in life to make disciples, how could any part of your life be meaningless? 
You may not feel like it. You may look around right now and think like, I, I don't see God's purpose. I don't see the meaning in my life right now. And I would say, okay, that doesn't mean it's not there. Like just because you don't know what God's doing in your life doesn't mean he's not doing something. This stage of life with two young kids, it strikes me that there are many times with our kids where we're trying to accomplish five or six or seven things at once, but they're only aware of one of them. So for example, Lydia right now is having a very hard time staying in her chair at the dinner table. And so when she gets up over and over and over again and we tell her, you need to stay in your chair, you need to stay in your chair, okay, you're going to have consequences if you don't stay in your chair. She thinks, mom and dad want me to stay in my chair for some reason that I can't understand. But what we're thinking is, yes, we want you to stay in your chair. We also want you to finish your dinner so you're not getting hungry right as we're putting you down, asking for food. We also want to teach you good manners. We want to teach you how to ask for permission to be excused. We want to just generally teach you how to sit still in one place for more than a couple minutes at a time. And she doesn't understand any of that. And frankly, when we try to explain it to her, she still doesn't really understand any of it, right? Uh, with Everett, <clears throat> like we've, we've you know, gotten through the process of sleep training mostly, it, sometimes we still have to let him cry it out a little bit. And not only does he not have the capacity to understand what we're trying to do, which is multiple things, teach him how to pacify himself, teach him how to put himself back to sleep, create good sleep habits, he doesn't understand any of that. To whatever extent he does understand what's going on, he thinks we're torturing him. Like, he thinks we're being mean to him, but we're working for our good, for his good, and for our good as well, but also for his good. How much more so with God, who is infinitely greater than us, than we are in comparison to our children? You may have no idea what God's doing in your life. You may not feel like he's doing anything in your life, but he might be doing a million things right now. And that leads us to the last thing, which is that God has provided for your future, God, through Christ, is remaking everything, which includes you, if you are in him. And as C.S. Lewis said, if, if you are in Christ, God is making you now into something so glorious, so beautiful, so awesome, that if you saw it today, you would bow down and worship it. If you saw the future you a million years from now, you would bow down and lick the dust at your feet. That's how glorious God is making you. That future pulls us forward, doesn't it? That vision of what God is doing in your life, what he's making you, conforming you into the image of Christ. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us the promise that not only has God provided for our future, but he's provided meaning for today because he has provided for our great need. My prayer for us as a church is that we would, we would grasp hold of that by faith even when it doesn't seem true and that that would shape the way we, we live, that we would live like people who really believe in divine providence, in a good and loving and powerful God who is working all things together for our good and his glory.